Okay, now we got to watch what we're going to say. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, and the story begins. Okay, chapter 30, page 340-341. This is a beautiful chapter. It's so powerful. I believe, I firmly believe with all my heart and soul that if everybody in the world were to learn this chapter, would be here. The world would be a better place. I, I really do love the chapter. Well, I thought it was interesting. One of the first sentences in the chapter said that this chapter was not included in the original manuscripts of the Tanya. Right. Right. It was it was added later. It doesn't necessarily have to belong in the flow of Tanya. But it does actually flow quite well from chapter from the theme of chapter twenty nine, the idea of humility. Our souls can shine. We'll talk more about that soon. The chapter starts off quoting from uh, from the Mishnah, from Tractate Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. Humble before everybody. Be humble. And... How is that possible? I could be humble in front of people that are greater than me, in front of those whom are, in my mind, of respect. But... How could I be humble before those whom I perceive as lower than me? How is that possible? How could I literally be humble in front of everybody? I have to say this, this <clears throat> you know, so some, some, some things stand out more than others is, is like life-changing things for you. Like a lot of them are like, okay, I, I, I can already associate that with that. I, I get that. I'm kind of doing that. This this one gave me a, just an amazing new appreciation for how to um, think about uh, the, the the actions uh, of others that 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 seem inappropriate or wrong or you know it just gives you a whole new insight on on, on thinking about this and for me that was really kind of life changing because um, you know it, it it really it was one of those profound things for me. Amazing, amazing. In other words, the way we become humble is like, like, let's not look at people's behavior. Don't judge their behavior, their feelings. Essentially, the idea of empathy means I'm not just looking at what I see. I'm going to try to go into your shoes. Let's take a look. I'm going to read the first two paragraphs um, Okay, on 341. 341, I'll read from the top of the page, the top of the English. Also, take the following to heart. Try to fulfill the teaching of our sages of blessed memory. Be humble in spirit before everyone, which implies that you shouldn't just act humbly, but you should literally genuinely and genuinely feel humble before everybody. Not enough to give the impression of being humble, we actually have to feel humble. Even before the most religiously irreverent person, before people that seem to not take things seriously, right? people that aren't as careful as us, we still have to not only respect them, we have to actually, and not only love them, we have to actually be humble before them. How is that possible? So the next paragraph gives the answer. And this is a, um, it, 
And the key to doing this is by following another teaching of our sages of blessed memory. Again, from Tractate Davot, Ethics of Our Fathers, don't judge another person until you've been in his circumstances. How am I humbled by people? First, I have to put myself in their circumstances. Empathize. Empathy is so important. Empathy is the key. Because when I empathize, I don't judge. I experience. I don't have to judge. When do we make judgments? When we don't know what happened. Now we make a judgment. Right? We see a what somebody did or what somebody's doing. We see a very limited slice of their life. And we paint this entire narrative around that. Empathy means I'm not painting any pictures and judging. I'm going to go right into your shoes and see how you're experiencing this. In contemporary psychology and counseling, they urge therapists not to make serious judgment calls on people's lives just because you've met them for 45 minutes once a week. <laughs> you see a slice of their life. And even though people are opening up, you see a slice of their life. And all of a sudden, you're making these huge judgment calls, giving life-altering advice. And it's like you got to be super careful. And that's through empathizing. Let me try some shoes. Don't judge a person until you've entered their circumstances. The next, the top of the next paragraph, it's his circumstances that has caused him to sin. Somebody who has sinned, somebody who has done something and we perhaps lose respect for that behavior. Very easy to judge them and just totally lose respect. But that's because we're judging them by their behavior. But try to be, empathize and put ourselves in their circumstances. The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, once came out of his study and spontaneously, it was a regular weekday, spontaneously started pouring L'chaim, schnapps, to all of the Hasidim, saying L'chaim, with every, and he was overcome with joy. And somebody said, what's going on? It's not a holiday. What's the celebration? The Alter Rebbe had, was just, had this illuminating look on his face. And he said, today, I was able to fulfill what I've written in the beginning of chapter 30 of Tanya, in our chapter. It says that you have to be humble in front of everybody, even before the quote-unquote lowest of the low, even in front of sinners, you have to be humble in front of everybody. Today, I encountered somebody who has done things that he shouldn't have, who was a sinner. And I thought I was superior than him. I thought about it. I empathized. And I realized that he has so many more advantages over I do, over myself. And in many senses, he's greater than me. And we'll talk more about that soon, how that could be possible. And I was humbled. And I was able to fulfill what I've written in chapter 30 of Tanya, our chapter. He was celebrating that. Okay. So, how do I become humble? What do I do? Where do I get this humility? How, what line of thinking do I need? Be humbled 
by everybody. One of my favorite lines that I've heard years ago. Don't judge somebody just because they sin differently. My favorite quote by Anonymous. I don't know who it's from. You repeat that for Josh? Yes. Don't judge somebody just because they sin differently than you. Which is essentially what we do. We see somebody doing something they shouldn't have. We judge them. We lose respect for them because they did something they shouldn't have. And we're not being naive, but you're right, they shouldn't have. So what do we do? We judge them. But let's take, let's stop for a moment. A little bit of vulnerability, right? Let's look at the mirror. Maybe I didn't do that sin. But am I better? Or do I just sin differently? Am I myself perfect? And here's what the Altered Ebba says. Let's jump to 343. Page 343. Uh, the middle paragraph, it's the first bold paragraph. Therefore, every person must take into account his current standing and level in the worship of God to weigh and evaluate for himself if he's really worshiping God at the same level as those faced with the enormous struggles and tests mentioned above people who are exposed to unimaginable temptations so i see somebody who's sinned or i see somebody who's continuously sinning somebody who's doing something they shouldn't have what i need to do rather than judge them is assess how much effort would it take for them to stop doing that cut that sin out of their lifestyle Totally abandon it, turn around. How much effort would it take? Perhaps a lot of effort, right? That's called empathizing. Let me, for myself, how, much, how hard would it be to stop that sin, to cut that out? Right, that's the empathy. But now there's applying the empathy. Am I applying that much effort that I'm demanding of this person to myself? In my relationship with God, in my relationship with others. Not necessarily in the same exact area of life. And the Al-Tadeba gives several examples on, on um, the bottom of 333, 343, 344. When I pray, right, it's very easy to get distracted during prayer. If you want to save the world. Pray, because that's when all the distractions come in, right? It's very difficult to stay focused. It takes effort. The amount of effort I'm demand, I'm expecting of, of this individual whom I'm judging to stop sinning, am I applying that effort to stay focused during prayer? Am I applying that much effort to give the amount of charity, to, to motivate myself to give the amount of charity which I should? Am I applying that amount of effort to study the amount of Torah, to study a little bit more Torah. These are all just examples. To say blessings before I eat. To, to, we all have something. Nobody's perfect. And as much as I'm expecting this individual to 
stop sending. That takes work. How much work is it, am I willing to put in that effort? Any thoughts, comments, controversy? So, you know, when I think about this, um, it, it's one of the harder things for me to like wrap my head around is that all sins are equal before God. All mitzvahs are equal before God. You know, that, that kind of thing where like, okay, because I think further on it talks about, you know, no matter no matter the sin, it's it's you're you're uh, cutting the connection with Hashem. Um, but it's it's difficult to um, think think about um, you know why 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 is killing not in in Hashem's eyes you know more or less um, uh, severe. Than some other sin of oh I didn't give enough tzedakah or I forgot to give tzedakah. Um, that's that's really difficult to uh, kind of get your head wrapped around. Okay, interesting. Good question. When we say sins are equal, all sins are equal. Um, look, everything is contextual. I think everybody's going to agree. From a human perspective, that killing somebody is a lot worse than withholding charity. <laughs> right. Right. Even the Torah has different levels of accountability for different levels of sin. So to some degree, even within the paradigm of Judaism, sins are not necessarily equal. When we say sins are equal, what we mean is no matter what a person does, if a person sins, they're crossing a line. That's what we mean. Crossing a line. So, in terms of their approach to a relationship, they're doing something which God doesn't like. I mean, think about that in any relationship. If there's something our spouse really dislikes, let's say there's several things our spouse dislikes. Okay, so I won't do this, but I'm still going to do this. Okay, that's nice. You're doing less things that, that upset your spouse. But terms of the perspective, I'm still crossing a line. So it's all contextual. But in our context and in context of our chapter, the idea is, let's not even look at the person's sin. It's not our job to judge people. Let's, uh, let's look at the effort that it would take for him to stop that sin. Right? And ask myself, Am I applying that effort to stop myself from sinning? Um, and, and this applies both in applying that effort to motivating me to do more good, whether it be focused on prayer, giving charity, whatever it is. There's, there's a ton of, I mean, everybody's going to have their own example. But also, am I applying that much effort to stop myself from, from doing bad, from negativity? So you're not saying, you're saying that we're supposed to use this method to improve ourselves. you're not necessarily saying that we're obligated to try to help this person to stop sinning because that's probably almost impossible unless he wants to stop sinning exactly there there's actually according to the code of jewish law 
you're not supposed to reprimand somebody from sinning if you know they're not going to listen. Because then they're just going to be doing it on purpose, which is much worse. Um, still use that as an example to improve ourselves, to make sure that we're not putting ourselves above that person. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, if, if the individual is um, open to a discussion, really the approach is not that you need to stop sinning, it's we need to stop sinning. We need to improve. We both have areas that we need to improve in. Let's do it in what you need to improve in all improve and we do this humble than just coming from above saying I am holier than thou you need to change. I'll tell you a story. We spoke about Abzusha was known as a big tzaddik. Abzusha was just to give historical context was a contemporary was a colleague of the Alt Rebbe of the author of the Tanya. Abzusha actually um, has a forward that he wrote on the Tanya, beginning of the book. Not a forward, a, um, I'm trying to think of the word. I can never remember the English word. I only remember the Hebrew word. Not a preface, a... Uh, T testimonial, was it? Testimonial, kind of, yeah. Forgot, but, but there's a word that I'm looking for. There's a word, yeah. Sort of testimonial, a... Um, Want to put your stamp of approval on something? Isn't approbation. 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 There we go. Approbation. It's in the book. Okay. Oh, there you go. <laughs> in the book, right? There, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rabzusha wrote an approbation on the book of Tanya, just to give you a historical context um, as to who he was. Rabzusha knew of this individual who was involved in particular sins. And Rabzusha wanted to help him out, help a brother, you know. But Rabzusha was a very sensitive person. He didn't just start yelling at him and saying, you're a sin. What he did was, he was in the synagogue. I think he was in the synagogue, I don't know. But he happened to have been, he started praying. And starts confessing to God. Silently, but audibly. And Rebzusha starts listing all these different sins that he did. Now, we know Zusha, he didn't do those sins. He was listing this other guy's sins. As if he did them. And he was crying from the depths of his heart. God, please forgive me for all these sins that he did. And he starts listing the sin, not one after one. And it happens to be all these different sins that, he, that this guy did. This guy was like a little confused. <laughs> You know, this is a little close to home. <laughs> What's going on here? Ibzusha starts, so, so at, at some point this guy was inspired to actually correct his ways. And together with Zusha, they kind of collaborated and they really worked on themselves and they really picked up their lives and, and really improved themselves. Now, was, where did Rebzusha get this idea from? Start Starting to confess for sins that he didn't do. The rule is, Baal Shem Tov used to say, brought in other sources as well, apparently, I didn't know this, but the Baal Shem Tov used to say, the Baal Shem Tov movement, 
um, several generations before the Altarev, the author of the Tanya, about 300 years ago, used to say that when one notices negativity within someone else, it's a reflection of their own, of the, of their own selves. A, a tzaddik, a complete tzaddik, only sees good in people. Um, Reb, Rabbi Nissen Mangel. Reb Nissen Mangel is a Holocaust survivor. Lives in Brooklyn. Um, the sitter that we use in Chabad, the English sitter, he was the sitter of that sitter. Um, he, he, he was actually, yeah, that one, there we go. Wow. You even came prepared with the props. How did you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was a, he was a, he's an expert translator. He has a degree in English, like a doctorate in English studies or something, in English language. Um, the first edition of the English, the first translation of the Tanya was actually done by him as well. Not this translation, but an earlier translation was done by him as well. He also served as a secretary to the Lubavitcher Rebbe for, I think, about four decades. And he said, with all the time he spent with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, not once did he ever hear the Rebbe say anything negative about somebody. A real tzaddik only sees good within others because that's the reality that they live from. But for us regular folk, we see something negative within someone else. It's a reflection of our own selves. That doesn't mean that the negativity doesn't exist within that person. But the we focus on means that we live from and we kind of need to wash our own windows, if you will. So Reb Zusha saw that this person sinned. Saw that this person did all these negative things. He did deep soul searching. And he realized that all these things that this person did wrong, I too did wrong. Maybe not on the same level, maybe not in the literal sense, but in some maybe more abstract version, I did these sins as well. Um, I can't even begin to think of an example. Um, can I ask you something? Is it not learning from other people's mistakes so you don't make the same mistakes? And then you improve yourself based on, so it's like a learning curve. And it's, it's not like comparing, it's just like, well, this person's done all these things and you know it's wrong, so please not let me do that mistake. Well, well that, yeah, that's part of it. We're not, the, exactly. In other words, the goal is not to actually compare ourselves to the other individual. The goal is to, is to really to learn. I mean, it's two things, like, like you're saying, to learn not to do what they're doing. You know, like it says in Perkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, who is a wise man, one who learns from everybody? Not just from wise people, not just from good people, but from all people. Because everybody this, this guy is empath he's not empathizing, he's taking it on as his own. So he's... Well, what he discovered, um, he discovered that he had many of the issues that this quote-unquote sinner had, that Zusha noticed within himself, just on a more perhaps refined level. And then his approach was not, hey, you need to fix yourself. It's, hey, we need to fix ourselves. Now, perhaps in different ways because we're different people and we have different challenges. But the approach is more empathetic rather than sympathetic. 
Is it because supporting him in thinking that he could have done that sin as well? And he's being empathetic by, by kind of putting himself in that guy's shoes and seeing yeah. if he can fix it? Exactly. In other words, he's with him rather than on top of him, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it takes a ton of humility to be able to do this. It takes a lot of personal vulnerability because we see people doing things we don't like all the time. Sometimes it's people we look up to. Sometimes it's thought we've respected our whole lives. And we see that slipped. And I don't really want to respect this person very much. How can I possibly? And the answer is. A little bit. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. How difficult would it be for me to stop that sin? How difficult would it be for me to to um, and even if it's not a sin per, per se, but to stop um, doing? But I shouldn't. What really apply that effort? I'm. I have an expectation of this person, obviously, right? That's why I'm frustrated with them. Down. Do I have the same expectations of myself? It takes a whole lot of vulnerability. Of this vulnerability, what is besides that our relationships are going to be a lot more peaceful? Um, we're going to get along with people much better. Besides for that, our souls will shine. Let's refer back to chapter, the beginning of chapter 29. A person is having difficulty connecting souls, if you will. Feeling that they have meaning, purpose in life. Feeling that there's more than just their physical cells, but there's something deeper. And maybe conceptually we understand it. But I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling inspired by life. Conceptually, I get that there's purpose. I get that there's a soul. I get that there's meaning. I get that there's something to be excited about. I get that there's more than just the physical meat of the body. Conceptually, I get it. But I don't feel that way. And... As the, the beginning of the chapter said, what happens is it's like a log. This log is not catching on fire. It's too thick. We need to make it more receptive to the flames. We need to become more receptive to the flames of our soul. We need to be humble. So our bodies can express, contain and express our souls rather than obstruct. Remember, in our second lesson on chapter 29, two weeks ago, we gave five different meditations. Vulnerable conversations that we can have with ourselves to humble ourselves. So, our, so we could literally just make more room for the soul. And essentially what this chapter is doing is adding a sixth conversation. A sixth tactic. Else, can we do to be more vulnerable to ourselves, with ourselves, 
so we can be more open. How can I be humble? I need to be humble in front of others. As soon as I am looking down at others, it's the ego. It's not the divine soul. That's the animal soul. That's the ball. I wouldn't do that. As we'll soon see later, we'll soon we'll see later in chapter uh, thirty-two, from the divine soul paradigm, we're going to get along just fine because it's like two flames. Two flames become one, right? Imagine the two flames were stuck in lanterns. Lanterns, they wouldn't become one. There's that glass body obstructing. Same with the souls. What separates two souls is the body. We'll see in chapter 32. But if we can get past that, if we have the, that humility to allow our souls to shine, we're going to become one. I have a question. Yes. So, so to be um, to get the humility and to be put feel to to be become open, you need feedback. So you need to identify that that there is something that's that 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 helps you open. But if no one's judging. And everybody's working on their own crap, then no one's going to give you the feedback. And you can see somebody's doing something that's really not halakhically beautiful, and no one points it out. You're actually doing the person an injustice. Uh, agreed. I agree with you 100%. And that's halakhically not okay because you can't let somebody fall into a hole. 100%. 100%. In fact, the Talmud says that a priest free himself, right? You need somebody to free you. And it's the same thing emotionally, um, psychologically, spiritually. When we're trapped, we need an outside perspective to point out, hey, this is the right way to do it. Now, and, and you're right, halachically, if somebody's doing something wrong, we need to stop them unless we know for sure that they're not going to listen and it's just going to make things worse. Yeah, so then it doesn't um, help if you're praying for them their sins, and because you see their sins and you're praying because you're taking it on your own and you're not empathizing with them, but you're making it your own. Well, we need to do both. Because the idea is we need to be... The, so the point of this, the point of empathizing is so we can be humble. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's also value uh, to helping them out, to pointing them in the right direction. There's value to that, but you can't do that if you, can't, if you don't empathize. Right? Because they're not going to listen otherwise. Um, this is the case spiritually. This is the case in every context. I know therapy. No one, I think this is historically proven. The most, um, what makes therapy successful is the, is the trust. Right? When a client trusts the therapist, that can't happen without empathy. Right? Imagine you're going through, uh, imagine somebody's going through an issue. And you say, well, look at the bright side, right? You keep trying to point out the silver lining. And you, they lose trust. You obviously don't get how I'm feeling because you keep trying to point out the good things. You don't understand that I'm in pain, right? When somebody's sinning, when somebody's doing something wrong, we need to understand their I don't know if it's their pain necessarily, but their challenge. We need to understand how challenging it is for them. 
That doesn't mean that we don't correct them. You're right, Sharon. I agree with you 100%. We do have to also out what they're sinning about and how it affects other people in terms of so then to help them gain insight into exactly 100%. And in fact, actually, you just reminded me. I want to go back a little bit to page 342. Rebecca says something important. This is an important point, and I think it's along the lines of what you're saying. Um, page. So the uh, second bold paragraph of 342, it's the middle of the page. Yes, we need to put ourselves in people's shoes. Yes, we need to judge favorably and say, look, how much effort, see how challenging they have it and how difficult it is. But we're not giving excuses for them. That's not our point. Our point isn't to give excuses for them. And that's what he says right here. Now, in truth, even a person who is very easily aroused to seek pleasure, to indulge, and his work does require him to sit, quote unquote, at street corners all day. In other words, he's in a position where he's exposed to all sorts of temptation and negative influences. So, yes, there's, there, there, there is room for... Um, to judge favorably and see see how challenging he has it. He's more exposed than I am, but he has no justifications for his sins. We're not here to justify what he's doing. That's not the point. And the moment he sins, he is classified as a rough who loses control, allows his animal soul to take control behaviorally. Since there is no uh, trepidation, of God before his eyes. In other words, we're not here to give excuses for him. We're not here to justify negative behavior. But at the same time, we're not here to judge the negative behavior either. So it's kind of a fine line. It's a balance. And uh, Sharon, I, I think that's a very important point that you mentioned. It, it's a it's a it's a really challenging and difficult balance. You know, we're walking on a tightrope. On the one hand, People shouldn't be doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and we're not here to give excuses for people, right? You could come up with enough excuses on your own. I don't need to give you excuses. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, we don't need to give excuses for people. That's not our point, and there, there, it's not about excuses. But for ourselves, in terms of not judging, in terms of not losing respect, in terms of trying to remain humble, we need to assess how much effort is it going to take you to stop, Am I applying that much effort to myself in other areas? So it's learning from that person's mistake and using that effort to do good things. Exactly. And, but that takes vulnerability and that, and that develops humility. And it's that humility that gets our bodies out of the way, so to speak, so our souls can shine so we could live a more inspired life, more motivating life. Make sense? Lawrence, you mentioned earlier that the Torah says that Moses was the most humble of people to have graced the earth. Right? Moses was the most humble person. If there's anybody who could fulfill this chapter successfully, being humbled before everybody, 
It's Moses. And the question is, how could how could Moses stay so humble? And um, if he was so humble, then how did he get mad at everybody? And how did he get angry? Right? Okay. Good. Good. One one of the explanations as to what made Moses so humble is he looked into the future and saw our generation. He compared it to himself. He says, someone like me received the Torah straight from God from Mount Sinai, experienced the, the miracles of the Red Sea, experienced the drama of receiving the Torah, spoke to God face to face. The entire generation in which I'm leading also had a similar experience. Which is why he got mad, holding him at, at, uh, at with high standards. But he says, "Let me look into the future generations, thousands of years later, where there's Jewish people and there's mankind at large that don't have the same exposure that I've had, and they're still doing their best. They're still trying to hold on to their traditions." They're trying to hold on to their moral compass, their, to their objective moral compass, hold on to their ideals, despite seeing the revelation and miracles that I've experienced. That's humbling. He was humble. He was humbled before you and I. Because we're living in Pleasanton, and we don't have the same exposure that Moses had at Sinai. Um, at least not in a revealed way, perhaps on a soul level. It's even worse than Livermore. <laughs> but how, how did how did Moses foresee that um, the same level of revelation that the Jewish people experienced at Sinai wouldn't still be um, available, for lack of a better word, to the future generations? How, you know, in, in other words, like it's like it's like Moses knew that. That at some point um, God would stop revealing Himself as apparently as He as He was revealing Himself to Moses' generation. Okay, good question. Good question. In other words, God revealed Himself. They experienced God. Who says who who is to say it was going to stop? Exile is a reality that was bound to happen. Or is it something like um, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, where? Where Elijah was there, and Elijah could see, but his servant couldn't, and he opened up Elijah's eyes. So maybe it's not so much that it's not present now, but maybe just we don't see. Well, well, yeah, that okay, that's true. Um, I mean, look, God is everywhere. We just it is perceptual. Um, less God now than there was, you know, two thousand, five thousand years ago. But for, on a revealed level, there is less because we don't see it. But she's like, how did Moses know that was going to happen? So, but in reality, um, exile is something that was bound to happen. The temple in Jerusalem housed the presence of God. Um, and when that was destroyed, the revelation, God is still present. But on a revealed level, on a, on a perceptual level, just on a soul level, it's not it, it's not the same, and that was something that was bound to happen. Um, all part of the prophecies. Good question. But don't aren't the modern the, the modern technology isn't that supposed to show us such miracles, such 
impressiveness that we are as impressed now with God as, as Moses was with thunder? 100%. What? There's children screaming. Is it any one of you? That have got that's me. That's me. I'm sorry. That's me. I'm, I mean, I'm sorry. Okay, no worries. <laughs> okay. Good question. Um, but again, that's not a revelation. That's something that you have to figure out on your own. Um, somebody who would call themselves an atheist wouldn't see it that way. But good. Good. Good question. Point. Um, tying that back into the theme of our chapter. The whole purpose of this, of being humble before everybody, is so we can be humble within ourselves. So there's kind of a feedback loop, a cycle. We're vulnerable with ourselves by being humble in front of everybody. And what happens is so our relationships are much are going to be in a much better place because we're not judging people, we're empathizing with people. We're allowing, what happens then is our, we allow more room for our souls to illuminate our lives, to live an inspired life, because now our body's more receptive. We're more receptive to a deeper sense of self. And now that we have a little bit more soul perspective, we can also connect with people on a soul level, which we'll talk about in chapter 32. Make sense? Okay, any thoughts, comments, controversy? I like controversy, but I don't, you know, it's <laughs> teasing. Okay, well, that's all I have to say. <laughs> all you've got to say. Okay, Rabbi, I'm going to sign off now. Good to see you all. Good, Good to see you, Lawrence. Take care, Lawrence. See, we'll see you next time. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay. There was any controversy, we'd have to take it outside. We'd have to take it outside. <laughs>